You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What do you have when the things you say and the things you do tell two different stories? You have anxiety, you have conflict, you have emotional warfare. Hey, hello storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. And you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com dot com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis L O U I S at Change Your Story Podcast dot com. Today's guest is a man who found himself in the front lines of emotional warfare. He fought and he won. He's a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm that serves Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. His work, theories, and research have been published in major periodicals. His expertise is helping people overcome obesity and food obsession. He has a deep understanding of the psychology of binge eating and has contributed to helping more than 40,000 people conquer their destructive habits. His book, Never Binge Again, is a must-read for anyone who is fighting a battle with food. Get as excited as I am to learn from Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Lewis. I've been looking forward to this all week. So have I, my friend. Let's begin with the beginning. Where were you born? <laughs> I was born in... Um, Walter Reed Army Hospital in Fort Alexandria, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. My dad was a psychologist and captain in the Army, and he was treating post-traumatic stress victims from Vietnam. And there was a hurricane that day, and my mom says I came out kicking butt and taking names. So Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just reminded me of Jimi Hendrix. He says, I'm a voodoo child. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I was a kid with something to say and something to do, and I, I still am. Fantastic. Now, your dad was in the military, but you didn't follow a military career, right? I didn't, know. no. No. I, I was terrified of it, actually. My, my, um, my mother was terrified my father was going to be sent to Vietnam. I was born in 1964. And so I, I grew up um, you know, with that fear inculcated in me and the idea that I should never go which I actually think was a mistake. I think that the military life, I kind of think everybody should experience it in their youth to develop a sense of um, discipline and confidence and you know humility, ability to be part of a team. But I, I didn't have that. I didn't have that. I, um, I went straight to school and was a pimply-faced PhD at 25 years old and started working with couples and adolescents and um, you know suicidal people and... Um, just went straight for being a psychologist like the 17, now 20 other psychotherapists in my family. How many? I, I think they're 20. The last time I counted, it's mom and dad, both of their spouses, they're divorced. Um, my sister and her husband, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandmother, 
my great uncle. I could go on and on. It's a ridiculous number of psychotherapists in the family. And um, you, you know, when I was a when I was four, I remember hearing my dad on the radio, and I asked mom what dad did, and she said, "Well, when people are unhappy, he makes them happy." That's how you explain it to a four-year-old. I guess it's not entirely true. That's not entirely what a psychologist does. But I thought that was cool, and I said, "Well, why does he do it on the radio?" And he said, "My mom said, well." Because he can make a lot more people happy if he does it on the radio, and I thought mm. that was even cool. So I, mm. I was, I was wanted to be, I was wanted to be more than just a country doctor. I wanted to be um, involved with psychoeducation and use the power of psychology to, you know, bring bring joy to the world where I could alleviate suffering. That's beautiful. You know, you started by saying, you know, I'm kind of sorry I didn't go into the military because great place to learn discipline. And and yet you became a Ph.D. You became, um, you, are you a psychiatrist or a psychologist? I, I'm a psychologist. I don't prescribe. I don't, I don't have okay. a medical degree. I've got a four-year Ph.D. Yeah. However, you cannot do that without focus and discipline. So... You found your way to it without carrying a gun, my friend, which is very, very interesting. But I, when you told me about your family just now, I just had this picture of a family dinner, which could turn into a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> you know, really, of everyone sitting around, you know, uh, analyzing each other. And this, this could be quite funny. Um, I could say a couple of things. But y yes, you're right. You don't want to come to a family dinner. It's not so much because they analyze each other. It's because nobody nobody agrees. Everybody's got a different theory about how things should be. That's funny. Um, That's funny. I, 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 analyzing someone, being a psychologist, is a good deal of work. It's it's a skill we have that works in a very particular situation. Are you a psychologist, Lou? I forget. Am I? No, not at all. I'm I'm an actor. Which, okay. which takes me into the realm of psychology, but I've never studied psychology formally, no. Well, and, and you have to be an actor to be an, to be an effective psychologist also. We could talk more about that. Mm, mm. But, but everyone, every day, is a psychologist to a certain extent because when you meet someone, you have to make an assessment of their motivation. Is this person safe? What do they want from me? What can I get from them? How close can I be from them? How, how much do I have to protect myself? How do they want to interact? Is it safe to interact with them like that? And there's this part of our brains that's engaged in predictive behavior based on, based on the subtle clues we can gather from people, regardless of, regardless of whether those people know that they're giving them off or not. So we're, we're all psychologists. But what people traditionally think of as analyzing you, well, that's something that, um, you know, if you sit down with me for 45 minutes and you want to pay me to do that, I'll focus all of my attention and my heart and soul on you to figure out what you're trying to accomplish and what's in your way and how we can kind of piece together the parts and move you forward. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a lot of work. I don't, I don't want to do that in my off hours. <laughs> The dinner scenario for me was, well, whether you want to do it or not, it just becomes a reflex and you start doing it. Now, who would you say influenced you the most when you were a child? Um, you know, I, I want to say my dad. I, I love my dad dearly, but he, he wasn't around all that much. So I, I idolized him and I wanted to be like him. Um, as a matter of fact, I even bugged his office when I was nine years old and listened to his sessions which is to totally illegal and not something I would recommend now. <laughs> but I was nine years old and I was that interested that I, you know, I didn't want to be out. I didn't want to be out with my friends. I wanted to be listening to what he was doing. And when he found out, he wasn't too happy about that. Okay, now, uh, now you're going to definitely have to uh, solve the mystery for everyone listening. How does a nine-year-old bug his dad's office or anybody's office for that matter? Um, well, my grandfather, who was a very significant influence on me, had taught me electronics in a very strange way. So he taught me how to, you know, get a microphone someplace that people couldn't hear it and how to run a wire. And he taught me about closed circuitry. He also, by the way, he, um, he taught me about electronic switches, magnetic switches. We put them on the toilet and we hooked them up to a tape recorder. We started talking to people when they sat down on the toilet and it 
would say things like, oh, no, don't go in here. There's somebody in here. Um, oh, my, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my grandfather's doing. But hey, He sounds like a great character. My grandfather was a good character. What, so did, I, he, what did he do? I'm just curious. What did he do in life? What was his um, calling? He, he, you know, he had a he had a troubled upbringing. He was um, he was part of an immigrant family, and the father died suddenly, and the mother couldn't afford to keep the two kids, and so, so she gave him up for an orphanage. An orphanage. So he grew up in an orphanage and kind of fell in with the wrong crowd. And he did some bad things before I was born. After I was born, he was a short order cook and um, had his own little delicatessen. And, you know, he did moderately well enough to pay the bills. And he kind of repented. This is all before I was born. And apparently when I was born, he put all of his love and energy into me. Um, and like I, I was his repentance. And so I didn't know any of this until I was an adult. But in retrospect, it makes sense. And he, um, I mean, obviously he had a little less than full conscience if he helped me bug my dad's office, but um, he was a good guy. He, he, you know, he cooked for me and he taught me how to build fires and he taught me how to exercise and he listened to me talk and he came and picked me up at school and um, I spent a lot of time with him. And my parents both worked in New York while we lived on Long Island so there was a housekeeper. If you ever saw the movie The Hours, where these kids are raised by the housekeeper. Um, oh, the, the Hours. Was that with the, the one with Meryl Streep? Yes. It was oh, my. Up. Powerful, yeah. Really powerful movie. So I, I was raised in large part by an African-American woman, and her, um, her gospel-singing 400-pound aunt, who used to come play Owen the Saints. And you know, I was taking classical piano lessons, and I asked her to write write down what she was doing so I could do what she was doing. And she goes, child, you doesn't write it down. You just goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I went through a couple of years where I wanted to be a musician. And um, yeah, I had a colorful upbringing. That's fantastic. These are great stories. Now, I know that you have conquered some very powerful personal demons um, while you were you know, on your journey to... Becoming a person who helps others. Can you talk about that? Food, food was my worst personal demon of all times. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up, today you would diagnose it as exercise bulimia, which, which means that I can't throw up. I can't force myself to throw up. I just, I kind of wished that I could when I was a kid. I don't, wish it, I don't wish I could now. But when I was a kid, I wished that I could, but I couldn't. But I discovered that if I worked out for, you know, two and a half, three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And I, I thought it was a superpower. I didn't think it was a problem. I felt like, um, you know, eating, you know, multiple pizzas and a box of Pop-Tarts and a box of sugar pops and, you know, a carton of ice cream. Doing that in one day was just really cool. As long as I worked out, I could do that. I'm 6'4 and I'm reasonably muscular, so I have that advantage. But when I got older and you know was getting my PhD and I was starting to see patients and I was married and uh, I'm divorced now by the way but but I just didn't have the time to do that I couldn't work out three hours a day I could barely work out a half an hour a day and I found that it was impossible to stop eating the way that I was so I was still having five or six thousand calories a day and I got fatter and fatter and fatter and the doctors were yelling at me that I was going to die by the time I was 35 because I had triglycerides, you know, well over a thousand at one point. I have an actual copy of a test at 826, but I know there were well over a thousand at one point. And I have a very poor cardiovascular genetic history. People have heart attacks up and down the line. And I just knew that, um, you know, I had to stop. More importantly, I had this mental obsession, which drove me crazy. Um, I just couldn't stop thinking. I'd be sitting there and working with a suicidal adolescent. That's a very high-risk situation. You have to be 100% present. And remember, being a psychologist has always been most important to me. I wanted to spread joy with psychology. I wanted to alleviate suffering. So it really bothered me, but I, 
I couldn't do it. I'd be sitting there with a suicidal adolescent or I'd be sitting with a couple that was just recovering from an affair. And I wasn't totally present because I kept thinking about when, when can I get to the deli and, you know, dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the counter into it. And yeah, so I I had this horrible obsession and I had this, um, you know, horrible physical problem. And because I am a psychologist, I went the psychological route to solve it. I, well, I guess a piece of the puzzle I left out is um, I don't have kids and I, don't, and I never commuted for work. I always worked at home. So I actually had a dual career and I did a lot of consulting for Fortune 100 companies, a lot of them in the big food space. And so I, I knew how to do these large studies. So as part of the solution that I was looking for, I, I funded my own study, very, very large study, did it online when clicks were cheap took several years to complete, and I wound up with 40,000 people in a survey, which was all about the relationship of binge foods to personality and lifestyle satisfaction. I really wanted to see what what was correlated. You know, I had a particular problem with chocolate, and other people had problems with salty, crunchy snacks, and some people have trouble with pasta and bread and things. And I wanted to see psychologically what was different about that. And I did find some interesting things. I, I found that, um, for example, people that were struggling with chocolate tended to be suffering with a lot of loneliness or heartbreak. And that made sense. Uh, it didn't cure the problem. I'll tell you why in a minute. But it made sense for me because I was in a relatively bad marriage and I was lonely. And when I talked to my mom about it, who's also a therapist, remember, and she said, well, when you were a toddler, you know, I, I was overwhelmed. Your, your grandfather was missing. My dad, your grandfather was missing. Your, your dad, my husband, was in the army. We were terrified he was going to go to Vietnam. And I just didn't have the wherewithal to always hug you and hold you and you know, cook for you when you were crying. So I would give you a bottle of chocolate Bosco. And you would kind of suck it and go into a ch- sugar coma. And um, so go get your Bosco, Glenn. And then you got really attached and you would insist that you needed your Bosco right now. And so you'd think that, well, there is the there there is the pattern, right? You'd think that that's where the match was struck, and therefore, knowing that I should be able to stop binging on chocolate, but it didn't work at all. And the reason is it it was a good thing to find out. I, I'm more forgiving of myself because I know that. I'm more forgiving of my mom because we had that conversation. It brought us closer. But for for the eating, I found that there was this little voice in my head that said, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And until you can fill that empty spot in your heart, you're just going to have to keep right on binging on chocolate. And I found the same thing when I work with patients and clients about um, – you know, in the study, we saw that salty, crunchy snacks tended to be associated with stress at work. And there was a similar voice in their head that said, well, yeah, this work situation is horrible, and I guess we are going to have to keep on eating pretzels and potato chips until we can fix the work situation. And people that craved salty, um, people that craved um, like the softer, starchier things like bagels and pasta, they tend to be more stressed at home. And they'd have that same voice in their head saying, we have to fix this home situation. And... And, you know, I'd I'd also gone to psychologists, as you'd imagine, I know some of the best psychologists and went to psychiatrists, they tried medication, I went to Overdue's Anonymous, all on the theory that I could love myself then, all on the theory that it's not what I was eating, it was what was eating me. Um, But it turned out that for people like me, not, not for everyone, but for most people like me, and there are a lot of them out there, overcoming overeating is a lot more like caging a rabid animal than nurturing an inner wounded child back to health. Because it doesn't really matter who struck the match or how it was struck. What matters is that there's a raging fire and you've got to be more of a fireman than a detective. It is what you're eating more so than what's, what's eating you. It, it is. And if you look at the neuroanatomy of the brain, I, I learned this from some of the alternative addiction treatment um, literature, particularly from Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. If you look at the anatomy of the brain, the structure that's most responsible for addiction, um, 
we'll talk about the 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 elements of culture right now that are making it very difficult to dislodge the the lizard brain, which is the structure I'm talking about, from the addictive substances. Um, the lizard brain evolved at a time when love wasn't really known. Um, the lizard brain looked at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? <laughs> eat, right? It's it's just eat, mate, or kill. It's It's not love. It's not long-term aspirations. It's not how do I contribute to society. It's not religion or spirituality or art or music or anything like that. It's just eat, mate, or kill. And so if your paradigm is when you have a craving that you need to love yourself more, what actually happens is you open yourself up more to the lizard brain. What what you want to do is you, you want a method for associating yourself more with your you know, neocortex or logical brain, or even the mammalian brain, which is, which is more associated with love and tribe and like, how do I delay the lizard brain and make sure that this is good for the people that I care about? You need a method for separating from that lizard brain and not, not loving it more. And so for 30 years, I suffered trying to love my lizard brain more when what I really needed to be doing was developing some disdain or distaste for it. And... Um, so this is an embarrassing part. This is what actually worked for me. I decided that my lizard brain was going to be my inner pig. Now, you don't have to call it a pig. A lot of women don't like to call it a pig. You can call it your slacker or your you know, inner B-I-T-C-H or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter. It's just not something you want to love more. Um, and real pigs in the world are very sweet animals. This is a mental construct. Real pigs need our help. They're being tortured and there's cruelty beyond measure in our animal agriculture system. We, it's a whole other topic. But I, I called up my inner pig and I decided to make a very clear line in the sand. The clear line was, for me, I will never eat chocolate again. P people don't have to do that. They can make it conditional. They can make other clear lines. M my philosophy is very diet agnostic. You can be on whatever diet you want to. As a matter of fact, I think it's important that you are. But I said, I'll never eat chocolate again. Therefore, any voice that suggests that I may eat chocolate either now or in the future, even one bite, taste, lick, or swallow, is pig squeal. And the chocolate itself is pig slop. Chocolate belongs in a pig's trough. I don't eat from a pig's trough, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And you know, the shortcut, the shortcut for, for that was, I don't crave chocolate, my pig does, and I don't, I don't eat pig slop. That's pig slop, I don't eat pig slop. And it's very guttural and primitive. It's not something you'd expect from a sophisticated psychologist who's done tens of millions of dollars of consulting like I have or you know, seen thousands of patients. It, it's not what you'd expect from me, and I'm always very embarrassed at this point in the interview to talk about it, but it's very primitive, it's very guttural, and it's, it's what I needed at the moment of impulse to buy me those extra microseconds to make the right decision. It just kind of wakes me up and reminds me who I am and what my longer-term goals are. And, you know, it wasn't a miracle right away. It, it was in some ways. It, 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 it was a miracle. I mean, there are thousands of people, if you look at the reviews on my book, there's literally over a thousand people that will say, you know, I read the first couple of chapters and it changed my life. Because it does, it does reverse the direction for a lot of people between feeling powerless and feeling powerful. But then there's a lot of tweaking that has to go on between, you know, to define exactly what's pig slop and what's healthy food and you know usually people have to start with one rule and then revise it a little bit and make other rules until they have a full plan that really works for them because it really does have to be crystal clear but um and over the course of a year or so i i really beat the pig and i kept a journal about it um and i wound up being a minor partner in a publishing company you know back in 2015 and i kept this journal for years and my partner was looking for a book to publish to prove that we knew what we were doing in terms of the marketing. And he asked me if I'd publish this journal because I kind of joke with him about it. It's all, it's all me versus the pig and the crazy things the pig says, like, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean comes from a plant and therefore chocolate's a vegetable. And it's, it's pretty funny. There's a lot of funny things the pig says in retrospect, but they, it wasn't funny when I was dealing with them. Um, I published the book, and long story short, it just took off. I, I just, I had no idea what was going to happen. 
was at a very fortuitous time because I was getting divorced and having to close down all these other businesses. And, you know, thank God I had something to, to live on um, and something that was really meaningful and purposeful for me. And now that's what I do. <laughs> No, no, I help. I'm a, I'm a pig battler. I help people battle their inner pigs, and um, there's a lot more to it. But that's that's the gist of my story. I absolutely love what you just shared, and uh, there are quite a few takeaways for me in that. One of the things I really found interesting was when you said that a few times you said that you were embarrassed because it's guttural, it's primitive, and you know, maybe, you know, not in alignment with the sophisticated psychologist who has all of the study, etc. But I would offer this point of view, the way I, through my eyes, it's wonderful. Uh, nothing to be at all apologetic about, because what you did is essential to, I think, everything that people do to either bring themselves forward or to undermine themselves, which is create a narrative based on that, that includes visual components, and that narrative is what drives people's actions always. Uh-huh. Always. That's why I have this podcast, because I believe literally that whatever we do, our whole identity is just based on a made-up story. And when you understand that and you begin to rewrite the story, you then can advance in your life. And that's what you were doing. You identified with a, a, a clearly with a certain character in you, and you dealt with that character. And that's, that's powerful stuff, man. Well, I'm glad you're going in that direction, Lewis, because um, I thoroughly endorse and support what you're saying. And I believe what really happens, what you're really doing, it's, it's very primitive, but what you're really doing is you're deciding what kind of person you want to be around particular foods. And that, a short, a short, a shortcut for that description is you're building character. If I say I will never eat chocolate again, what I'm really saying is I used to be the kind of person who ate chocolate, but I'm not that kind of person anymore. I just, I'm not the kind of person who has chocolate. I'm just not. And what we know scientifically about character versus willpower is that character trumps willpower. Um, willpower is a very fatigable muscle. We know that there are only so many good decisions that you can make over the course of the day. And that's why. People can start out the day with the best of plans for their for their eating, and then just before they go to bed, they raid the refrigerator or go out to you know Taco Bell or something like that. It's because um, they've used all of their willpower for the day. They're, they're they don't necessarily have character rules to dictate their food decisions for the rest of the day, and so they've they're leaving it to their willpower, and their willpower runs out. And I'd like to give you another example, if that's okay of how character trumps willpower. Um, when, when you walk into a diner and you sit down at the table and the, there's a $20 bill at the table but the waitress hasn't seen it yet. And she says, I'll be right back. I just have to go get your menus. And there's, no, there's nobody at the front counter. There's no video, t- video camera. There's no window by the table. Nobody would see if you took the $20 bill. You're not sitting with anybody else. I ask most people what they would do in that situation, and most people say, well, no, I wouldn't take that because that belongs to the waitress. And I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And they'll say, well, I'm not a thief. And I'll, I'll say, so you mean as a matter of character, you've decided the kind of person you'd like to be, and that helps you to withstand a pleasurable impulse. Because it would be pleasurable to have the $20 in their pocket instead of the waitress's pocket, and nobody would know. And they'll say, yes, I guess that's right. I guess that I've made that character decision without knowing it. And there are all sorts of decisions like that that we use to conduct ourselves in society every day, every day, every day, um, because, precisely because there are so many decisions we would otherwise face if we didn't know what kind of people we were. And 
when you step back and you make food rules for yourself, you're really deciding the kind of person you want to be around food. So you really are reshaping your character with a, and then you've got a narrative of, you know, the different pieces and parts of you that are going to fight that character development. But as Jean-Paul Sartre said, we can remake ourselves every day. Every day we get up and we decide whether we're going to live or not. That's proof that we can remake ourselves every day. And there's no reason that you can't remake yourself with a different character than you, than you had yesterday. Um, even though your inner pig will say, well, you can say that you're not going to have chocolate again, but I, you know, you've said that before and I can't get you right now, but I'm going to get you in the future. It's not true. You, you can decide. If, if mm-hmm. like, yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. And, you know, um, again, going back for a moment to what I introduced before about being proud of it instead of feeling, you know, embarrassed by it. What I was thinking was that our behavior, human beings, have been who they are since the beginning of time. And when you come to a sophisticated discipline like psychology, I would contend that that's just a codification of the behavior. But the behavior, understanding what that behavior really is, supersedes any rational explanation of it. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. You know, in terms of what you just said, too, you, you, as I was, what I was thinking about, yeah, that character will trump, I shouldn't use that word, uh, character will... Oh, it's taken by a certain orange-haired person. (laughs) Character will definitely um, override um, the um, willpower. And my belief, and you, you probably, I think you will agree with this, that essentially we make all of our decisions emotionally and then we justify our decisions with our intellect but we don't really make the decisions with our intellect even though we think we are and if you look at any images like you're talking about the inner pig so you have young people who are moving around in the world and they're looking at billboards that are showing them certain fashion icons and those images are giving them a picture of who they should be and I often look at the pictures of these people who look like they're angry, detached, and even depressed, and they make those images super sexy. But that's telling somebody that's your inner cool guy or cool girl. Not much different than your inner pig. This is true. You know? So it's, you know, the fact that you came up with that is actually something that you should you should have t-shirts made i i I do ah (laughs) fantastic actually the t-shirts and mugs that we have um they they say remember your big why if you um you can probably post a picture of the book on the on this podcast um we have a we did an awful lot of testing to develop the the graphics that we um we use for the cover and the um, the the thing about Never Binge Again, which is the name, that's the name of my book, my book. The thing about Never Binge Again that people don't understand is that you actually need carrots and sticks. So a lot of these rules, these disciplines, they're you know they're desired behaviors and they're things you have to do to control yourself. But your inner pig will tell you that you're giving up an awful lot to do that. What it won't tell you is what you're giving up if you don't. And so if I didn't stop giving up chocolate, then I, what I would be giving – if I didn't stop eating chocolate, what I would have given up is the possibility of a long and healthy life. Um, I would have given up the possibility of years at the end of my life, which were meant to be pain-free, which I'm then uh, have to – I'm just taking the toy away from the cat, I'm sorry, which I would have to live with pain and suffering. And um, – you know, and I would also give up living in a thin, confident, handsome body and walking around with, um, 
you know, with strengths and strength and the ability to influence people as a leader. I would give up so much, and I call that my big why. If you remember your big why, then when your pig says, you know, oh, but this tastes so good, it would be really convenient to eat this right now, you um, you you don't really feel distracted by that because it just pales in comparison to what your big why would be. So that's that's what my t-shirts and mugs say. We're, we're making some with um, oh, you know, we have we have a pig in a cage for a for a uh, keychain and a pig in a cage for a necklace and things like that. And we're working on the t-shirts for the pig in a cage too. So that's great. You know, uh, you, you must be familiar with Simon Sinek's book, start with why. Yes. Yeah. Um, his Ted talk on that, by the way, storytellers, if you haven't heard that, go to YouTube. If you haven't heard of him, haven't seen it. Go to YouTube, put in Simon Sinek, S I N E K and watch his talk about the importance of the big why that the, Glenn... The, the, huh? the essence of that, Lewis, if I remember correctly, is that people don't buy what you offer, they buy why you offer it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the brilliant example he offers in our the today's world is Apple Computers has created a why around being one of the cool people who are... Uh, kind of rebels you know you don't march to the status quo you do things differently so you're ahead of the crowd and what's fascinating is that as a result of that powerful putting that powerful why into people apple never competes on price person would rather pay two or three times as much for a mac computer than they would for a very good PC. And once they're part of that club, they're being driven by the why. Had nothing to do with money. Yep. You know, it's fascinating. So this is really, really great stuff that you're uh, introducing here. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. So what other forms of normal behavior, I mean, when I say other forms, besides, you know, just what we eat, what are the forms of normal behavior today are destructive addictions? Well, so you're not talking about like the black and white addictions like drugs and alcohol, are you? No, those are too obvious. Well, I think people can use any pleasurable activity as a destructive distraction. And it's a matter of whether it interferes with your life's balance. And... By the way, I don't believe that anybody else can diagnose an addiction for you. I think an addiction is the compulsive engagement in a certain pleasurable behavior beyond your own best judgment. So if you're doing something more than you think that you should be, then that's an addiction. And that's that's where it would be good to step back and ask yourself, what role would you like X to play in your life? And how are you going to define those boundaries? And you know, can you create an inner enemy to separate your constructive versus destructive thoughts about. So, you know, dancing could be an addiction, right? If you're dancing all day long and not moving your career forward or not paying attention to your kids or, um, I, I remember my dad, um, I don't know if you remember space invaders, the video game, but when space invaders came out, we, we had an Atari and my father was teaching. He had a class with like 30 people paying him to teach And he would be up in my sister's room playing Space Invaders at 20 past the hour when he was supposed to be teaching on the hour. And I would go go up and say, Dad, they're waiting for you downstairs. And he'd say, just one more game. (laughs) I mean, that's that's an addiction. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And, you know, um, there's an interesting dialogue going on right now about the addiction that we have to our electronic devices. And... um, but literal addictions, people don't think of them that way, that there's a sense of anxiety if you don't have your cell phone with you. There's a sense of anxiety if you don't have the cell phone by your bedside on during the night. If you forget your cell phone, oh my God, oh, I might have to go back home and get it. Really? Like, was there a time when you didn't even have the option to carry a phone with you when you traveled about. And 
what they're finding is that it is a chemical, it becomes a chemical addiction that the hit that we get from checking in with our cell phones, from checking in with the, the number of likes that we have on Facebook page, etc., is an actual dopamine hit. And we're being conditioned to physically want that. You take it away, we go through withdrawal and anxiety. It's yes. fascinating. fascinating. That's all true. What, what you have to be careful about, though, in our culture, is there's the notion that once something has been physiologically wired, that it's impossible to quit on your own. Um, and that's there's really not evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, the brain changes. I mean, I saw a study that showed that taxi cab drivers will show the same physiological change in their cingulate gyrus, I think it is, um, and dopaminergic response to the side of their cab as you know, a heroin addict would show to the side of the needle. And okay, hold on a second. I, I understood what you said, but it, but those terms may be right over the head of many people listening right now. I mean, not, not to insult my listeners, but you know, when you say dopa, what was that word? Dopa. Well, so d dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's associated with pleasure circuitry in the brain. Okay, so if you were to explain that phenomenon. In layman's terms right now, if you're talking to, um, let's say, a 15-year-old, how would you explain it? Well, it's like your brain is set up to develop memory of where to find pleasure. And if you find pleasure in a particular place, like even driving a taxi cab, then the dopamine pathways for that part of the brain that's responsible for pleasure are going to start lighting up more and um, be more predisposed to light up when you see the taxi cab or when you see the heroin needle. Mm. So if, if, if there's a stimulus, if there's some sign in the environment that is immediately followed by something that's pleasurable to you, then you're going to start lighting up. Your brain's going to start lighting up in association with that. And I, I believe that the part of the brain, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm a little weak on the neuroanatomy, but I, I think it's called the cingulate gyrus where the pleasure center is really, um, well, that's really the pleasure center, the, the center of the pleasure center. And a neuroanatomist would take me to town on all this, but it's, this, the basic concept is right. The things that fire together, that wire together, the things that fire together, wire together. So you see a taxi cab, you get pleasure from driving the taxi cab, then you're going to want to find taxi cabs more and get pleasure from them. You see a heroin needle, you get pleasure from injecting the heroin needle, you're going to want to find more heroin needles. Um, similarly, you can extinguish those connections by breaking the pathway. So you see a taxi cab and you don't drive, um, then the craving is going to be a little bit weaker. You see a heroin needle and you don't inject, then the association is going to be weaker. And over time, it goes away. And this, this is why, by the way, when your inner pig or inner B-I-T-C-H says, just a little won't hurt, we'll start tomorrow, it, it'll be just as, just as good to start tomorrow, it's not true. If I have a craving for chocolate today and I indulge that craving, the craving is going to be stronger tomorrow. So a little bit does hurt. A little bit makes it actually worse. It's harder to start tomorrow than to start right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of an important thing to, to remember. And so Go, go on, ahead. Okay, it's your show. It's your show. Go ahead. Well, it's your show, dude. But, but <laughs> no, no, no you, you're, 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 the spotlight is on you. Go ahead. What I was going to say is there's a perfect storm in our culture right now, which makes people feel powerless over the ability to, um, makes people feel powerless over their impulses to overeat. So, you know, I used to consult for big food, and I can tell you that there are billions of dollars that go into engineering these concentrated sources of you know, sugar and salt and fat and starch and oil and excitotoxins and sodium, everything pleasurable, you know, to concentrate it into a, uh, like a food-like substance that then goes in a bag or a box or a container. 
And we're not evolutionarily prepared for that level of pleasure. It, um, it, it kind of attaches the pleasure mechanisms in our brain at a very primitive level, and it causes us to engage in self-neglect. When they let rats self-stimulate the pleasure center, they wire an electrode to the, to the brain and they let themselves stimulate, they'll do it thousands of times per day at the expense of everything they need to survive. Starving rats won't eat, they'll go and they'll press that button. Uh, mother rats will abandon their nurse for nursing pups, and they'll go press the button. Rats will crawl over painful electrical shock grids, they'll go press that button thousands of times a day. And I don't think it's that far of a stretch to say that all of these bags and boxes and containers that we have, with billions of dollars of advertising behind them to make us believe that we really need them. And if you think that advertising doesn't work on you, I've got news for you. The research suggests advertising works better if you think it doesn't work on you. Mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and the advertising industry knows that. Um, and then the addictive, the addiction treatment industry says you're powerless to resist. You can't quit. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And you have to go to meetings every day or three times a week for the rest of your life in order to do that. Um, you know, so, so people really believe that they're powerless and they don't, they don't see what's going on. And I like to be, who was it in the, um, the movie, the matrix who gave Neo the red pill and the blue pill and let him choose. I, I think if you want to eat that stuff. That's okay. I mean, I would fight for your freedom to do that, just like I would, you know, fight for the, I'd fight for the Nazis' ability to march if they want to, because we live in a free society, even though I vehemently disagree with them. Um, I think we fought wars for our freedom in this country, but, um, but, but don't do it believing that you're powerless. Don't don't believe that. You can step aside and. Um, you know, you, you can use a simple technique like I'm talking about to let go of these food-like substances that are overtaking our lives. So mm -hmm. I forgot how we went down that rabbit hole, but... I no, 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 it's it's very powerful. And, and I think you're right. And what's uh, making it even more, uh, uh, making that kind of eating more attractive is the fact that it's, we're creating a a society that wants instant gratification for everything. So then they give you a package that says, yeah, you can be instantly gratified now. You don't have to go home and cook something. You don't have to go to a store and find good foods. Here is your instant hit. And so you take it, you know. Um, now, how can people, how, how do you apply the psychology of winners to eating? Well... Let's say you wanted to be an Olympic archer and you, you knew exactly where the bullseye was. So you can see the target. You have a very clear set of boundaries around the bullseye. Then there's a second ring around the bullseye and a third ring around the bullseye. Well, if you look at an Olympic archer when they're aiming, you can tell that they are almost merged with the target. They're not distracted by doubt and uncertainty. They can see the goal. They can visualize the arrow going into the bullseye. And in order to do that, they need to know where the bullseye is, and they need a mechanism for identifying the doubt and uncertainty and dismissing it. And that mechanism in food is using the word never or always and the word again. So even if it's a conditional rule, if you say, I will never eat chocolate again, or I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Now, in our culture, that's almost heresy to say because people will say, you can't know what you're never going to do. You can't say that you're never going to do that. What if you're at a party? What if you're at a birthday? What if um, you're at a restaurant and it's your, you know, your cousin's wedding and they're going to be insulted if you don't take a bite of the birthday cake? Um, what are you going to do then, smarty pants? And so we, we resort to not using the word never and just saying that let's use a guideline and say, well, 90% of the time I'm going to abstain from chocolate. But the problem with that, if we go back to the willpower discussion, is that there's no clarity about what decision has been made. And so every time there's chocolate in front of you, you've got a decision to make about is this part of the 90% or is this part of the 10%? And those decisions will wear down your willpower. And so you really need to have a statement, a rule, that 10 people watching you could agree upon, 
whether you followed it or you didn't follow it, whether the arrow went into the bullseye or not, that says, you know, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Now, people will say, well, I don't want to do that because what if I make a mistake? I'm going to feel too guilty. And it turns out that, well, let's just think about what if, what if an archer, I'm sorry, I need, I need to back up. People will say, I don't want to do that. What if I make a mistake? I'm going to feel too guilty and then I'll just go on an all-out binge. Well, that would be like the archer saying, if I miss the bullseye, I'm going to feel too guilty and I'm just going to take all the rest of the arrows and shoot them into the audience or, or up in the air or something like that. Screw it. I blew it. I'll just start again tomorrow. Um, if you make a mistake, you're supposed to just get up and do it again. Immediately get up and aim at the bullseye again. And if you keep doing that, you have to get better with your aim. We're learning machines. And so if you keep aiming and getting up and aiming and getting up and aiming, you have to get better. If you accidentally miss, or you, let's say you accidentally touch a hot stove, you're not supposed to say, oh, geez, I feel so guilty. I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher. Let me just put my whole hand on it. You're not supposed to do that. Or if you accidentally chip a tooth, you're not supposed to get a hammer and bang the rest of them out. Um, but people are frightened of that guilt and shame. They don't recognize that, you know, yes, there is a legitimate function of guilt and shame. Feel it for a moment like you'd feel the pain of touching a hot stove. But then you need to figure out, well, why wasn't I aware of the hot stove? And how am I going to avoid touching that in the future? And maybe I need to move the bullseye a little bit. Maybe I need to move the target a little bit. But it's all about getting up and aiming and dismissing the doubt and insecurity. And without a very clear rule, you can't separate your pig's voice from yourself. You can't separate your constructive versus your destructive thoughts about food if you don't know where the bullseye is. If you know where the bullseye is, then you can tell when you're aiming at the bullseye and when you're not. Um, and it's really, really clear and easy. So that's what I mean about the psychology of winners. And um, it's aim at the bullseye and aim again and aim again and aim again. What Does that I make like, sense? Oh, yeah. What I like, what I'm hearing is, and this is something that is reinforced in all of the personal development training that I have, um, I've done. I hear this from a lot of thought leaders is that you, real change begins when you make a decision. And it's not an intellectual decision. It's a decision that you feel with your entire being. Because I think that's what you're saying, correct? Is that when you make that statement for yourself, you have now made a decision about who you are. And that makes it, that gives you a better, uh, a better chance to succeed at it. Much better chance. It, it, it gives you vision. It gives you clarity. Okay. It gives, it gives you focus. Okay. And, you know, would there be some value in even reframing, or I would say change the story about the language we're, how we use the words? Like you say, you see, people are afraid to make a mistake. That word is so potent. We don't like thinking of ourselves as people who make mistakes. But what if, like entrepreneurs literally do not hold the concept of failure in their minds. That's why they have the expression, fail forward. You are making an attempt. You're taking an action. So what if you said, okay, I took that shot. I didn't hit the bullseye, but good for me because I took an action. I took another positive action. I will continue to take positive actions until it hits the bullseye. I, I like that even better. And uh, yeah, and and for me, I instead of even the word never, it has a slightly negative connotation. What if what if I said, my in my decision, I am a person who makes the best food choices consciously five days a week. Well, Lewis, I. I would call that a healthy guideline. That's, that's like I only eat when I'm hungry and I always stop when I'm full. Okay. It's a, it's a guideline, but it's not objectively verifiable. Okay. And if it's not objectively verifiable, what happens is the ambiguity within it allows the pig to um, burrow through. So it'll say something like, 
well, you're making, this is the best choice. This chocolate cake, it's a pretty good choice here. And, and without, with that ambiguity, people tend not to do as well in my experience. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very well-motivated thought, and it's kind of like a true north that people can keep moving for moving towards. So I think they can include that, but um, I would object to them using that as their only food rule because my experience is that the pig gets through when you do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, in your book, Never Binge Again, I assume you would also have s- practical tips for how to change the mindset to bring you closer to um, making empowering choices for yourself. Of course. Okay, wonderful. Where do you see yourself in five years, Glenn? Um, my mission at the moment is to help a million people a year stop binge eating. And at the moment, we've, we're reaching about 100,000 people a year. Um, I'm hoping that that bumps up quickly. Um, the, last, the last few months, I've been training a team of four coaches to deliver what I deliver so we can deliver it on a larger scale. And, um, you know, things are heating up in terms of the book getting more popular. So if, if I'm helping a million people a year in five years, I'll be happy. Mm. I, I, I might also like to do some social activism in the food industry and see if I can affect some regulation that would make it not, not legal for the companies to be doing some of the things that they're doing now. Um, but I, I don't have a lot of experience in that way. I have more experience in, in advertising and growing businesses and psychology. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus there on helping the people first. Wonderful. That is wonderful. And it's specific. So I, um, it's, it's something you can measure, and which means that there's a good likelihood that you will achieve it. What is your favorite I, book? I sure as hell will achieve it. It's there it happen. is. There it is. I like that. I like that. And, okay, Pig, did you hear that? Get out of the way. Yes. Now, what is your favorite book besides your own? There's a book by, can, can I give two or do I have to give one? No, you can give two, sure. There's a book by Jim Rohn called How to Live an Inspired Life, um, which actually makes the point that you just made about writing your goals down very specifically. But I just like the way that he presented it. And he says a life of discipline is better than a life of regret, and I've always lived by that credo. I love Jim Rohn. And what about another book? I, I really like, I have to give um, credit to Jack Trimpey from Rational Recovery. Um, the book is called Rational, I think it's called The Art of Rational. Rational Recovery is the book. And um, he works largely with black and white addictions. And he's the one that really changed my whole paradigm from trying to love myself then to really separating from the addictive brain. And how, what is his name again? You can find him at rational.org. Okay. Um, his name is Jack Trimpey. I think it's T-R-I-M-P-Y, or maybe it's P-E-Y, I forget. How can people contact you? What I'd like people to do is go over to neverbingeagain.com to get a free copy of my book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. If you want the paperback and audible versions are also available, but there's a charge for those. Um, and when you do that, click on the big red more button sign up for the free reader bonuses. That's how you get that. I will also give you a set of food plan templates for any dietary philosophy that you might be working on. I call them starter templates because I want you to customize it for yourself. And more importantly, I've recorded a bunch of full-length coaching sessions so that you can, and this is all free, so that you can hear what it's like to implement this theory in practice. Um, It's interesting in theory when we Lou and I talk about it, but it can sound a little bit harsh. If you hear how it works in practice, you'll think it's a really compassionate philosophy. And um, there's nothing like hearing people's excitement when they really get it and they realize that they have the power. I love that. So neverbingeagain.com for all of these incredible free resources. Quite wonderful. And um, I didn't ask you, I will now, what is your favorite quote? Probably the one that I told you from Jim Rohn, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. That man has been quoted so many times by so many people. I'll I'll give you another quote that is less common, 
um, but makes a similar point. Peter McWilliams said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want, which really means that you have to have the discipline to focus on you know, the thing that you really want and say no to the things that you don't. And who is that man's name? Peter McWilliams. He was a self-help guru in the 1980s. Love it. And McWilliams, is that M.C. Williams? I believe so. Okay. You're aware of the fact that Jim Rohn, uh, that he, I mean, Anthony Robbins attributes who Anthony Robbins became to Jim Rohn. I know. I mean, it's... it's he, he, he worked for him for a while. Yeah. You know, when he first met Jim Rohn, he was a mess. He was overweight. He was eating badly. And he was broke. And now, well, the rest is history. Absolutely incredible stuff, my friend. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world, just one, what would it be? One thing in the world I would. Boy, no one ever asked me that before. If I could change one thing in the world, I would make it illegal to refine pleasurable substances beyond a certain point. Um, I, I think that it's really destroying our society. To make it to make make it illegal to what? Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't allow refined sugar to be sold on the market. I wouldn't allow, you know, these super refined carbohydrates to be sold on the market. I I think um I I think that as much as I believe in freedom, I also believe that the government has some responsibility to eliminate um dangerous substances from the marketplace and protect the consumer. So if I, if I could change one thing, I would increase the standards by which um, refined substances were allowed on the market. Mm. Hey, that, that's um, it, uh, not everyone will agree, but it's certainly a noble idea. Any final thoughts for our storytellers? All you need to do to never binge again is, is never binge again. It's, it's not as complicated as it's made out to be. You, ca you can't start with one rule. Start with one simple rule for your single worst trigger food behavior. Um, watch yourself. Make sure it's really well defined. Then listen for your inner enemy, whatever you call it, telling you to break that rule. And commit to separating those two voices. Commit to separating your healthy, constructive um, part of yourself that says, yes, I can follow these rules and I will, to the part that has all sorts of reasons and excuses for you not to. And so you, you can't really eliminate, you can't eliminate the lizard brain. You're going to have cravings from time to time, but you can 100% separate from those cravings. And if you do that, you'll be installing an algorithm in your brain that will grow and grow and grow and make you healthier and healthier and healthier. So that would be the one thing I would have people do. That's fantastic. Now, storytellers, although Glenn Livingston has been talking predominantly about eating, this is something that you could apply to other areas of your life that are not serving you. How to attack other habits that you feel you're a slave to that are taking your power away. Glenn, I can't thank you enough. You've delivered a lot of richness and great value to our listeners today. Well, thank you so much, Lou. I really appreciate it. Perhaps to be continued. Okay, whenever you want. Thank you once again, storytellers, for joining me and Dr. Glenn Livingston on another exciting journey. Remember to pay this forward. Tell people they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, anyone who visits the website will find a free gift waiting for them, a downloadable free ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Talking about books, we mentioned, as we always do, books in this podcast. Our sponsor is Audible. And they are making the generous offer to you, our storyteller listeners. 
to download your favorite audiobook title absolutely free and to get one month of Audible service for free as well. You get to choose your book from 120,000 titles. What to think about for next week or during the next week? Yes, Dr. Livingston addressed specifically the problem of binge eating. But what is that? That is a destructive habit. I would argue that all of us have habits in our lives that are not serving us. Do some searching. If Maybe you won't have to search. Maybe you already know what those habits are. But if you don't, do a little soul searching. Be honest with yourself. What habit is something that is really standing in your way of greater joy, greater financial power and strength, greater fulfillment? And then begin to address it, to conquer it by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.